Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I will be in dialogue with Elise Samergian. We will be discussing her newly published book and the broader subject matter surrounding it. She is the author of Remnants, Embodied Archives of the Armenian Genocide, published in Palo Alto by Stanford University Press, 2023. Elise is the Robert Aram and Marianne Kalusdian and Stephen and Marianne Mugar, Chair in Ar- of Armenian Genocide Studies at the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Elise, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ari. I'm honored to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today and catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult? Wow, what a question. Um, you know, so I, I think this book is more personal than my other writing because it's really trying to address um, a skeleton in a closet, if you will, like um, the fact that my family didn't really share much about our family's history. Um, everything was quite quiet um, around um, the subject of the Armenian genocide, not in a political way, of course, you know, they would talk about the genocide, but, um, you know, even just sharing stories about our family, um, knowing the names of individuals in our family, that was something that was not passed down to me. Um, Harry Haratunian has called this um, this kind of the unspoken as heritage, which is the title of his memoir. Um, <clears throat> so many people have had this experience, and I felt like this uh, not knowing, this kind of absence of knowing, um, was something worth interrogating, and that it was connected to intergenerational trauma and uh, communal trauma of the Armenian people. Um, and so, as a researcher, I've found myself always obsessed with fragmentary evidence. You know, uh, earlier in my career, I was always tracking the movement of women in Aleppo's Sharia courts and um, Armenian women getting divorces from their husbands. I've, I've written about some of these topics using these very fragmentary records. And so I'm used to dealing with frustratingly fragmentary <clears throat> records. And I thought, well, what if I actually um, applied that to a more personal subject matter, um, like the Armenian genocide, and on top of that, experimented with the boundaries of what I can do as a historian by including some small fragments of my own story, um, including other people's post-memory stories. Um, And of course, part of this was also born because I I am indeed inspired by Holocaust studies and um, scholars who have paved the way before me to show what was really possible to do with fragmentary evidence. There are many people you thank in your acknowledgments. Would you like to express gratitude and appreciation to anyone publicly? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I, I've, first of all, I have been blessed to have funding from Whitman College, from Fulbright, from uh, especially Cornell University um, funded this book. This book would not have been possible without their Society for the Humanities. And, you know, at a time that the humanities is under attack, I'm very thankful that those bits of money came to me 
um, to produce this volume. Um, but personally, I I would like to focus actually on something that I think people wouldn't think I would focus on, which is, um, you know, those Turkish intellectuals and activists and Kurdish intellectuals and activists who have stuck their necks out um, over the last uh, decade and a half, two decades, um, to talk about this issue, and they have been persecuted. Um, some of them are no longer able to live inside Turkey as a result. Um, though you know from the book, Kurds were perpetrators of the Armenian genocide. Um, their own struggle is tied to this moment, and they have done a lot of important political work to uh, um, really attend to their role in the Hamadiyya massacres in the Armenian genocide. And um, there was nothing more powerful than having um, a, a, a Kurd in Van come up to me um, in 2008 and say, I apologize to you for anything that my grandfather did to your grandfather. And for me, that opened a door for me to start thinking about this point of history differently and to realize that um, even among perpetrators, there is a kind of understanding and acknowledgement. And so some of that uh, connection I've had with intellectuals and activists um, is really important. And so I talk about the 2015 centennial of the Armenian genocide in Diyarbakir. Um, and this was with a group that was organized by, um, you know, Armenian an Armenian historian in London, and we we were able to come together uh, to commemorate uh, Kurds and Armenians and Turks together, um, and that that gives me hope for the future. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Um, okay, so I mean, I think. Um, one of the the story I'm trying to tell here is um, one about Armenian women and their experience of genocide. And um, one of the reasons why I'm focusing on women is because, I mean, genocide is a feminist issue. And I think that our community needs to hear that. Um, why would I argue that our genocide is a feminist issue? Well, genocide targets uh, reproduction, the genos and genocide is targeting the family, kin, and those interconnections, and it seeks to sever them. Um, thus, like we have, you know, Lemkin's definition of, of genocide, including the separation of men from women in order to inhibit reproduction. Well, this process is also shaded in a, a slightly different way in the Ottoman Empire with Armenian women, um, because the Ottoman Empire had a history of, of, of slavery, Enslaving, enslaving non-Muslims, and that slavery was also gendered. And we know that from Madeleine Zilfi's work and a number of historians who've worked on gendered slavery, uh, uh, Jada Karamusel. Um, so we, we know that slavery was gendered. So um, the way that this played out was that, you know, genocide included this kind of trafficking in bodies. I mean, the League of Nations called it trafficking in women that, uh, affected women and children in particular differently than men. I mean, men were killed in one particular way that was also gendered, and they were disappeared uh, in labor battalions. battalions. But uh, we had women and children who were absorbed into households, and none of their stories are identical, but the predominant story is that they were treated as excess labor, and that included maternal labor of literally birthing um, the nation of Turkey. Because so many of these um, Armenian Armenian women 
became wives to Turkish and Kurdish men and birthed the next generation of idealized, you know, Turkish citizens who would be Muslim. Um, so how do we get to the experiences of those women? And that's where, you know, the vignettes that I offer in the book, what I call remnants, are these short vignettes where I'm trying to amplify um, the voices and experiences of women um, who experienced, um, again, horrific violence. Um, we're talking about extreme sexual violence. And then on top of it, many of the women were, were second, third, or fourth wives who were treated as surplus labor in the household. And so when they were rescued, they had uh, horrific bodily damage. You know, the, the emphasis on embodiment is because of the bodily damage they incurred. Some people didn't survive for even days after being rescued because they'd been through too much. So I wanted to try to amplify those victims' voices and show that the archive itself is violently produced and seeks to erase those stories, but yet we can find fragments, we can find fingerprints and footprints of these, um, um, of these victims inside even the, the national archives in Turkey, this, or the, the, what they're called the Prime Minister's Archives in Istanbul, but you can find even richer evidence in places like the Armenian National Archives, League of Nations, um, other places where I've gleaned these stories, and in the women's memoirs where they actually recount these events. So um, so the critique of the archive is also about how a lot of these stories are dismissed. Um, they're either removed from the archives or they're dismissed as not as being tall tales, not important to the understanding of history. And I try to argue that these emotional narratives that women are offering are indeed important. Um, and so the feminist aspect is about amplifying women's voices, but also saying that that personal emotional aspect matters um, in history writing. What do you mean by the terms prosthetic memory and Armenian prosthetic memory? Um, okay, so prosthetic memory, it's not a term that I've come up with. It actually has some of its origins in um, Pianora's theories. So um, I tapped into theory in order to think about the connection between memory and embodiment. Of course, in trauma studies, you know, whether we're talking about Van der Kolk or we're talking about um, uh, Mate, uh, you know, these, these uh, practitioners of trauma therapy, you know, they, they talk about how we often talk about a mind-body divide as if it's Cartesian, uh, Descartes kind of divide. But really, mind-body are one thing, one entity. You know, memories located inside the body. Um, and Pierre, Pierre Nora talked about uh, memory prosthesis. And I thought that that was an interesting concept because I was really trying to talk about trauma and embodiment, um, especially with regard to the tattoos, which I think are automatically signifying to people that trauma can be born on the skin, can be born on the body. Um, and so anyway, uh, prosthetic memory is really about how um, memory isn't embodied, but also prosthetic memory is about Armenians acquiring the memory of other Armenians. It's also communal. Um, and this really comes together with the specter of the tattooed woman, which I think weighs heavily on the imagination of the Armenian community. Um, we, we think about the tattooed woman, as, you know, wearing these tribal tattoos as sort of a symbol of trauma. And there's a reason for that, right? I think the tattoo itself is trauma. It is a wound on the skin. So it's, it forms the perfect metaphor. 
But these images and ideas are transmitted through families, through memories that are passed down from grandmothers um, and, and grandfathers, for that matter. Um, but also the, the memory of Derazor is passed down in a very similar way. I talk about Derazor, the killing fields in the third part of the book, which deals with bones, and talk about bone memory as well as a concept that I develop, which is, you know, thinking about how, you know, prosthetic, prosthetic memory is transferred also with the memory of Derazor and the killings that took place there. And bone memory is what I use to talk about how Another form of collective memory is taking place when Armenians are grabbing the bones and sharing the bones and sharing selfies with the bones and transmitting these as postcards to each other. Um, also sharing narratives about their experience in Derzor is a way of really building a communal memory that's transferred from generation to generation. The, the power of prosthetic memory and bone memory as these concepts is that people go to these spaces and they have a visual picture already about what happened there, not today, but in 1915. And so um, that memory transference that happens with prosthetic memory means that people are feeling as though they're experiencing the land as it was in 1915. They see the rivers of blood. They see uh, piles of bones or mounds of bones. Uh, they can see uh, half-dead Armenians walking in front of them in the desert. And so that's what prosthetic memory is. is it's enlivening, uh, really, the memory. Um, it, and I'm not saying whether it has to be accurate or not. I mean, these could be stories people have read in texts because there's a rich written tradition um, on these pilgrimages, as I call them. But there's also people's um, memories they've obtained from their grandparents that they're sharing um, with, that they shared with me um, after going to Derzor. Can you interpret the image on the front cover of your book for us? The front cover is actually a, a focused image of Lutvie Balemjian, who is from Aintab, which is where my family was originally from. And she's the first image in the introduction of the book. And so you get the fuller context of the image. I, I didn't do the cropping, so I, I didn't have anything to do with the cover design. I think it's really compelling, but I can also see how people who are critics of visual um, of the visual might actually have some critiques of the cover, but it is Lutfi's face um, cropped. And I analyze the fuller picture because there's a lot in that picture. Um, this is where I veer into visual studies to analyze the clothing she's wearing, um, her belt, um, her rooster belt, and other, other details of what she's wearing um, that I think offer us some insights into her as a person. Um, but it, it, for me, it was really symbolic to highlight a woman from Aintab because it's, again, where my family's from, and I share that, that story in the prologue. Um, but she is a woman who had been trafficked among several houses before being rescued in Aleppo. And it's uncertain where she went. She had, she had found family in Aleppo, but she also had family in Marseille. So I kind of meet, make, make her my muse for the introduction to think about the possibilities of what her life might have been after she was rescued. What is your book's contribution to memory studies? Um, I hope that prosthetic memory is, is useful to, to memory studies. I, I, I came across it later 
in the process of writing, but for me, it has been useful. Um, you know, memory studies has been dominated by, you know, Pierre Noir, Noir's concept of um, sites of memory. And a lot of these sites of memory, they're official sites of memory that are ritualized and ceremonialized by states. And so what I hope I'm contributing is a way of thinking outside of the state. Because for those of uh, these, these communities that live in very strict authoritarian contexts, and I consider Turkey a strict authoritarian context because protests or gatherings and intellectuals have been arrested, gatherings have been canceled. So it's not as free of a place as it was even a decade ago. But people rely upon what I call, you know, vernacular practices, these vernacular rituals in, in, with the absence of the state. And that's what's happened in Derzor. So I'm hoping that thinking about Derzor as a more of a, a clandestine vernacular site of memory. Um, I, I use Roma Sendaita, who's a Holocaust scholar. I use her concept of non-sites of memory uh, as a counterweight, counterbalance to Pierre Nora. So I see myself as situated in that debate um, and hope that some of the narratives that I'm offering of Armenians in Derazor can offer some insights to um, memory studies as I've received such insights from that field. Can you kindly compare and contrast tattoos in the Armenian genocide with tattoos in the Holocaust? So, you know, um, you know, the Armenian, the Armenians, number one, were tattooed with traditional tribal tattooing. Not all women received these tattoos, but those who were absorbed into families that were tattooed and communities that were tattooed were given these tattoos. And they are the same tattoos that those communities bore. So the, the context for those tattoos that I try to bring into soft focus using James Peacock's term, an anthropologist, is that these tattoos actually, um, you know, they're the same tattoos as the communities that that these women were absorbed by forcibly or not, or not, or adopted. You know, each woman had a different story. But the tattoos themselves are not, markings that are particular to Armenians. They're particular to those communities. In fact, the markings themselves, I start with the analysis of the cover in my introduction, which is that we learn which tribe absorbed her because there's a, a, a three um, motif symbol on her face that actually designates the Anaza tribe. So if we think of it that way, these are tribes, these are, these are marks of tribal membership that these women have been adopted, absorbed into the tribe. So they are not slave brandings or mark slave markings as many Western observers had thought them to be when they wrote about them during World War One and after. But um, this is 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 uh, very different than the context for the Holocaust tattoo, which is particular to Auschwitz, which also, um, you know, has had to be shown in order to eat. So it was tied directly to biopolitics, who gets to live. You know, like life itself is 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 tied to the tattoo from my understanding. And um and also was tied to death, right? Like the order of death as far as I understand. So um these these tribal tattoos did not have that same kind of resonance. They did not mark these women for death or mark them as slaves. They mark them as tribal members. And so I, I share later in the book the story of Sarpohi Tavuktian. And Sarpohi, um, 
she she remembered very vividly when she was in Rasalain, she had already been horribly beaten by Turkish soldiers. And there had been periodic sweeps in this area where she was living. In fact, she had confronted a Turkish soldier who saw her and looked at her twice because she wasn't tattooed. She understood that not being the only non-tattooed person in that community made her stand out. So one day her father said, we're, we're going to tattoo you so that you look like us. And so there are narratives of that sort. She's not the only one. And the idea was that, you know, at a time in which Armenians were endangered, those who weren't tattooed among those tattooed communities stood out. But then there are some other, you know, horrific stories of, you know, a lot of these girls who were tattooed or women, they didn't know Arabic. They didn't know why they were being tattooed. They were just, you know, in the case of Alavni, Kabakian was being pinned down to the ground and tattooed in a, an act that really simulates a rape violation because she's being held down and tattooed by her neighbors by force. And so, um, you know, while reading that narrative, I found myself calling it a tattoo rape because it, 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 it was so violent uh, as she described it. And she felt ashamed of her tattoos her whole life and was insisted that, insistent that she needed to get them removed. And she finally found uh, an American doctor in Istanbul after the war who was willing to remove her tattoos, um, William Post, and he did the surgery because she begged um, for him to do so. So we know in Istanbul, Aleppo, um, Mersavan, um, and then of course in the, in the United States, we have traces of doctors who were performing the tattoo removal in order to eliminate the stigma that these women felt on their faces. They felt shame, especially at a time when they are trying to become Armenian again, you know, because the marks themselves are marks of assimilation to another community. Um, those marks would have been foreign to anybody living in an urban center. They would have been a, a, a symbol of somebody who lived in a rural area. And there are many stereotypes about tribal peoples, even among city dwellers in the Ottoman Empire. So the tattoos just sort of reaffirmed, I think, that feeling of outside, being outside uh, at a time when those Armenian women wanted to be inside again, inside the community. Um, going back to the Holocaust, um, I do not know about tattoo removal. If uh, some, I am, assume that some survivors might have sought tattoo removal, but there are also really interesting developments like <clears throat> our, you know, Jewish descendants of Holocaust survivors wanting to get the tattoo, the Auschwitz tattoo, as a, a memory of what their grandparents had experienced. And that that would also be another contrast with the case of the Armenians, where I don't know if any, Armenian, or any Armenians, maybe I need to be made aware of it, but I don't know of any Armenians who are getting these tattoos to um, remember their grandmothers, because um, there's still a lot of shame and stigma about these tattoos in the community today. What was involved in processes of tattoo removal? What okay. procedures were employed? What tools and chemicals were used? How much pain was experienced? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, when Serpo Hitavukchian, who I mentioned earlier, who had been um, absorbed in a, in a um, family in Rasalain, when she got to America, into uh, to she went to Baltimore 
she went to Johns Hopkins University, and she had to get more than six procedures to get the tattoos removed, and she said it was painful. Um, they were experimenting with a number of different techniques, but in those multi-procedures, uh, multi-layered procedures, a lot of them are kind of acid burns, and um, some of them involved kind of drying out the skin and desiccating it and picking out the tattoos. Um, and in some case that I think I found, you know, a, a non, um, non-written case, it's just a, a photograph, actually, from Karen Yapay's albums of a woman who had her tattoos removed, and they just cut them out with a scalpel. Um, so that was going to cause terrible scarring. But in the U.S., the doctors in these um, journals of dermatology were talking about electrolysis. They were talking about different forms of acid. The acid was preferable because it left less scarring on the face. Um, but I did find with um, Aravni Kabakian, who had her tattoos removed by Dr. Post in, in Istanbul, um, that on her immigration certificate, it did say she had a scar on her chin. So the scarring was showing in her case, which she didn't tell me in her memoirs or her recorded testimony how she had her tattoos removed, but um, it sounds like it might have been with a scalpel or something more invasive than the acid. The acid, it gradually allows the new skin to grow in um, and leaves less scarring. So it seems to have been the preferred method by the 1920s in the United States um, because we have some documentation of it in the press. Um, and I mean, they, they of course did not want to scar these women already the tattoo was one form of scarring, but um, they were developing these technologies after World War I because of the scarring and including gunpowder burns that were on the skin of um, the soldiers who had come home from World War I. So doctors were really on the front line of trying to, you know, to troubleshoot um, these various forms of burning and tattooing. Um, and so you can find some cases, and that's where we also find traces of Armenian women and their agency because they're going before these boards and asking for help. What does your research reveal about clothing during the Armenian genocide? Can you tell us about the textures, fabrics, and aesthetics that you discovered? Oh, well, I mean, I didn't I didn't go too far into the 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 clothing, but in the in the photographs that I share I mean, you can see that a lot of, especially my family photograph, which is in the prologue, you can see that, you know, there are these Western tastes that are kind of coming into focus. Women have their hair in these updos, these late Victorian um, aesthetics, dark clothing, high chin lines. Um, but we also have traditional clothing. Um, my, you know, again, my family patriarch who's in the, uh, the prologue, Hagop was wearing a traditional kamar, a kamar, uh, which you usually held your money in your belt, in this little belt you would tie around your waist, um, and wearing, a, you know, kind of a kaftan, as you would call it, I think in English, kaftan to the floor. Um, and so you have like traditional forms of dress and non sort of more modern European-inspired forms of dress. But a lot of people were sewing their own clothing, and my family were tailors. So they were sewing clothing a lot. Um, and I reveal that also I discovered that my family also sewed the soldiers' 
uniforms. The very soldiers who killed the Armenians, their, 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 their clothing was sewed by my family. So that made me think a little bit more about clothing. Um, and so generally speaking, clothing demarcated your class, clothing demarcated uh, your community. Um, a lot of it was hand sewn by family members. Embroidery, of course, was an art that many women uh, kept alive and passed down traditionally. Um, so during the deportations, this might be what you're getting at, during the deportations, one of the things that's shocking that is per pretty con you know, continuously mentioned by survivors um, is that their clothing was taken from them oftentimes before a mass murder event, and it's because those clothing were also sold as a commodity. And you had uh, villagers and um, people in the area who were not targeted, basically the Muslim population, who survivors talked about marching in the desert and seeing um, you know, people wearing Armenian clothing because the clothing was being exchanged as money, as a kind of a cash crop, um, as the Armenians were dying. But the the stripping of clothing is very important to kind of stripping Armenians down to just their bare life, to stripping them down as a human. It, it helps demolish them as a human. Um, it makes them more animal-like in the eyes of those who perpetrate genocide. And I talk about that preparatory work as being important to kind of, I call it genocide's body work. That genocide's body work includes this preparatory work that's done by perpetrators to dehumanize um, the targeted population. So this kind of deployment of nudity and, and, and also forcing people into extreme weather conditions, extreme cold and extreme heat, was one way that the environment was also mobilized to um, destroy Armenians. This also sets it apart from the Holocaust in the sense that um, the, the environment was being used as a kind of gas chamber, as a kind of um, mass murder machine, um, something that um, Jason DeLeon calls the hybrid collective. It's like where the insects, the animals, the environment itself is weaponized. Um, and, in, and, instead, and you have this kind of, kind of more industrial machine constructed at Auschwitz. Um, but of course, the, the deprivation, the extreme deprivation of Auschwitz, I think mirrors also the extreme deprivation that was used to um, annihilate Armenians, starvation, thirst, and setbacks. Can you describe the history of the town of Dar Azur? What befell it during the Armenian genocide, according to your research? Deir Zor is in eastern Syria. It's very close to the Iraqi border. Um, you know, it, it was a province of the Ottoman Empire, and it, it was it's quite small. And in fact, the you know the town, you know, uh, in part, many Armenians stayed on after the genocide and became residents of Deir Zor. So um, they had a presence there um, up until the war in 2011. I don't really know that there are many Armenians left. Um, but the city itself was situated, it's situated along the Euphrates River. And so the deportation routes were, were quite set. Um, Ottomans were, um, Ottoman gendarme, that is, are deporting Armenians along the Euphrates River. 
And so along the river, there were gathering points. And at those gathering points, there were ad hoc, I, I couldn't even call them a concentration camp, but they're encampments of Armenians with no supplies um, along the Euphrates. And um, Derzor was one of those gathering points. And it's in, it's in 1916, actually, um, a year into the, the genocidal process, that they begin a policy of taking Armenians outside of Derzor and killing them in mass. And so a lot of those killing fields that I explore in the book are produced during this second phase of mass killing. Armenians weren't dying quickly or efficiently enough um, from the first period of deportation. Um, in fact, there, there's a lot of surprise that Armenians were surviving as they were. Some people found it incredulous. How are they surviving at all? Um, what we find out from Khachik Muradian's new book, The Resistance Network, is that Armenians were actually out there rescuing themselves, smuggling food in, getting really resourceful at finding a way to survive in circumstances in which no one uh, was expected to survive. Okay, so outside of Derzor uh, is where a lot of this killing took place. And the, the Ottoman authorities by then had learned over the last year uh, from 1915 to 1916, that bodies produce contagion that can actually infect and kill Muslims. And so in this kind of biopower, this kind of exercise of um, the state protecting Muslims um, and their life lives, um, you have the state actually demanding that some of this killing take place outside of city centers, um, not just so that the deaths aren't seen, but also to kind of control contagion. Um, and this is where we have them sometimes burning bodies, burying bodies. Um, there are stories of just waterways and drinking wells being clogged with bodies. And so at a certain point, the state starts to see this as a health concern. Um, and that means that you just have mass uh, mounds of bones in and around Derazor that anybody, even today, could go visit, take take souvenirs from those you know, from those places or relics, if you want to call them relics. And, um, you know, they're completely uninvestigated. There was only one excavation that I, I found, um, which was, again, now 15 years ago, that went on for about four or five days and was halted um, by the Syrian authorities. There's been no excavation of these sites. It's completely un, unattended. Now, the Armenian community in 1990... Um, the Archbishop of Aleppo actually had uh, commissioned two, one a church and a chapel. So a church, which became also a museum, which was destroyed by ISIS um, during the Syrian war. And the second was a chapel that was on top of a very, very large mass burial site in a place called Margheta. And um, those were the only markers. But both of those sites, as far as I know, we know the church in Derzor was destroyed um, during the fighting in 2014, but also the chapel itself, is, it, I've heard from those who visited, is no longer there. So the only markers of those mass death sites uh, are gone. And now, as we know from the Syrian war, there are now new deaths atop the old. And so I try to leave the reader with thinking about bone on bone, which is how I'm, I'm trying to understand um, the, the pattern of killing over time, like thinking about 1915 in light of tw 2015, which is when ISIS conquered Derzor, 
uh, I don't think Americans knew that, what stiff resistance the Sunni tribesmen put up against um, ISIS at that time. Um, they were crucifying people in the public square, um, you know, just crucifying um, men who resisted um, ISIS's rule. And then um, this also happened in Raqqa, which is not so far from Derzor. It's another place where a lot of Armenians uh, were rescued and deported to during the Armenian genocide. Raqqa became the ISIS capital. And there were also public displays of the dead, kind of using the body as a kind of pedagogy, pedagogical uh, billboard, if you will, for ISIS ideology. Um, and um, there were also mass killings in the desert of um, Sunni tribesmen who were resisting. Um, and, and so it seems like there are many more stories to tell of Derzor and, um, and the bones in Derzor because now they're no longer just Armenian bones. How does your research advance our understanding of slavery? Um, well, I would say in this case, so we have in the 19th century, we have a Western rhetoric of white slavery. And this rhetoric of white slavery was like really directed at the Ottoman Empire, primarily for continuing concubinage. I mean, in the Islamic tradition, in Sharia, you know, like concubinage is permissible, right? Slavery is permissible. In, in the last years of the Ottoman Empire, you know, they were stamping out slavery. But what we know from other researchers is that for, for, some, for some reason, they continued to enslave women. Like somehow slavery was targeting men, was targeting African slaves. It was, it was disproportionately addressing male enslavement. But somehow there was this kind of blindsight with regard to blindside, with regard to female slavery. And so concubinage was practiced up to the end of the Ottoman Empire in many households. So um, female slavery becomes this kind of, um, um, you know, a, perpetu a perpetual issue in the Ottoman Empire. Um, I, for, for the Western uh, observers, humanitarians, they were obsessed with Western, Western slavery, or excuse me, with white slavery. And the idea that white slavery needed to be stamped out. Um, and I think from there we get the traffic in women and children, which becomes the kind of discourse at the turn of the 20th century and the League of Nations. Um, so in this sense, you know, the Armenians were considered a case study in traffic in women and children. Now, traffic in women was often used towards prost global prostitution. And global prostitution also, um, you know, included women who were looking for job opportunities abroad and got lured, you know, abroad. Apparently, and one of my colleagues is working on this, there's a lot of rhetoric around Jews and this kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric around who's trafficking these women. Um, but in the context of the Ottoman Empire, the Armenians constituted this case, and I think it helped really mobilize humanitarian imaginations around the Armenian cause to rescue Armenian women and children who were being enslaved by Muslim others. So the enslavement has to be taking place with others, I mean, whether it's Jews or Muslims, in these kind of discourses about global trafficking in women and children. But um, the truth is Armenian women were being trafficked 
Um, we have emergent slave markets in places uh, like Orfa was one of the cities where there was a slave market where some Armenian survivors talk about being auctioned off for a couple sheep or for some gold coins. Um, and so this was a case, an actual case in which there was slave auctioning taking place during 1915, 1916. Um, and so as soon as, um, you know, as soon as the kind of chaos of war erupts, we have people falling back into old memories of slavery and, and practicing it in, in, in the Ottoman Empire. And so I'm trying to address that. And I, I hope that that offers some lens to like what happens. Well, what happened with ISIS, for example, where slavery has been wiped out um, in the Middle East, I can say formally. <laughs> we also know that domestic um, laborers are not treated with any kind of respect or given their proper rights and due in places like Lebanon, places like the Gulf. But still, officially, slavery is abolished. And yet we have you know, the Islamic State enslaving Yazidi women. And so it tells us, like, when we have the formal states sort of falling apart in, in chaos and war, it's very easy for um, Muslim Muslim men to access texts and say, okay, slavery is, is, is condoned by the Quran, therefore we can do this. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and so... The fact that it's in the text, I think, makes it easy for people to access it and, and try to apply it um, when the state isn't actively prohibiting it or able to. In the case of Syria, still Syria is not in control. The Syrian state in Damascus is not in control of eastern Syria, east, northeastern Syria. So, How does your study plant the seeds for enhanced cooperation and continued collaboration between Holocaust studies and Armenian genocide studies? It's a good question. I I mean, I think we ugh, Armenian genocide studies owes a huge debt of gratitude to Holocaust studies. Um, because, I mean, for me, like especially working on these issues, my touchstones were Marianne Hirsch, were um, Dominique Lacapra. Um, you know, I we're we're constantly looking to Holocaust studies um, for ways of thinking about the Armenian genocide, but also it's been the converse, historically, because the Armenian genocide happened before the Holocaust. Um, one thing I could share is um, I do talk about one survivor named Palazzo Kaptanian, and she was a survivor from Samson. And what's remarkable about her is she published the first memoir by an Armenian woman that we know of, a first-person survivor account in her own hand in 1919. And her account, published in French, uh, informed Raphael Lemkin's definition of genocide. He read her memoir and used, especially what's useful about her memoir is um, that she talks about the gender dynamics of, of, of the genocide. Um, she talks about mass rape of women. She talks about how, you know, auctioning off of women was happening during the deportation. Um, and, you know, she talks about her own experiences. So thinking about that, um, you know, Raphael Lemkin studied her text carefully in, in formulating his own definition of genocide. I think if anything that tells you about, like, how it is that Holocaust studies is, um, Holocaust studies is tied to Armenian genocide studies 
even in the formation of the term genocide by, um, you know, Lemkin's definition in creation of the uh, the, the, the term uh, genocide itself. Um, so, I mean, that was just one of many case studies. I mean, he was a great student of history. So I think all of us who are engaged in genocide studies have to study case studies across time, across space, geographical locations. In your view, what does the future hold for pedagogy, research, memory, and historiography of the Armenian genocide as living survivors die out? What trends have occurred in recent decades? What trends are occurring now? That's really a good question because, I mean, I, I did not get to talk to any living survivors. I used recorded testimony. So I think it's really important that um, the Shoah Foundation's uh, Visual History Archive has um, invited Armenian recordings to be housed there. They're accessible online. If, if they're not online, they can be remotely shown to you. It's quite remarkable. And so the Visual History Archive for my teaching uh, at Clark University is going to be very important. I mean, I want students to engage those testimonies. I think that's, you know, the recording of these testimonies is a gift to subsequent generations. I know as a researcher, sometimes I want other questions to be asked, but even in an archived document, there's there's always going to be something opaque or something missing. Um, those are just issues we have to deal with as researchers. Um, but I'm also interested in non those kind of non-conventional sources. I would say non-conventional for historians, but I'm interested in post-memory. I'm interested in the stories people carry inside them. Um, I'm interested in things that continue to haunt. You know, I'm interested in intergenerational trauma. Um, it's real. Um, and I, I, I think that these are some of the ways that we can continue to talk about the genocide, well, including um, subsequent generations. And so for me, I'm really inspired by artists and what they're doing with post-memory. I mentioned a few of them along the way, um, but, um, you know, those who are uh, addressing fragments by um, weaving them actually into textiles, <laughs> there's... Um, a number of artists that are using collage or sort of interacting with historical photographs in creative ways. Um, you know, how can we, how can we kind of create new memories from the past? I think that artists are sort of paving the way for that. Um, so I'm, I am a historian, but I'm also, I, I would say, as somebody who's identifying as a feminist author, I need to include also what people are doing with the past because I think that that can offer some creative insights. And also, I would say, like, propel our field forward, you know. Um, there are still too many archives untapped. We have wealth and riches out there of documents, and our field is really blooming right now, Armenian Genocide Studies. So um, I do not want to, like, say that traditional archives don't have a role because I myself am a beneficiary of traditional archives and use them. But I guess I'm saying for those who want to do something different, I do think that post-memory is, is an area that I think we could do a lot more with in the field. Can you describe the Aintura Orphanage? 
what happened to it during the Armenian genocide. Can you tell the story? Yes. Um, well, I mean, this this story really, we, we, we owe uh, gratitude and thanks to historians and also memoirs that were written by those who survived it. Um, Keith Wattenpah uh, of UC Davis has written about it, um, but he also wrote the foreword to a, a memoir written by Karnik Panyan, which was published in 2015, I believe, by Stanford as well. And Karnik was a survivor there, and he talked about how, um, well, first of all, Jamel Pasha, who was one of the three leaders of the Ottoman Empire at the time, um, saw himself as a friend or ally to Armenians. At least this is how he fashioned himself. He had administered Aleppo and had many Armenian friends and contacts there. But he had a different approach, which he saw as humanitarian. So his humanitarian approach was to create um, an orphanage like Aintura, which was his. And in Aintura, the kids were brought there. And, um, you know, we had, they had, um, you know, given them a strict regimen of, you know, learning Turkish, becoming Muslim, taking on Muslim names. So it, it basically, and Keith Wattenbaugh is the person who continues to, he just published another article about Aintura and talked about it being really a, like an Indian boarding school transplanted in Lebanon. Um, in fact, he, he's suggesting um, with some evidence that Jamal Pasha was inspired by the, the Indian boarding school model. So that's why it sounds so familiar, this idea of forcible assimilation of children in a boarding school. Um, the ch children, if they show, you know, spoke Armenian or were defiant at adopting Turkish Muslim um, attributes, they were punished. And so Panyan himself was flogged until he passed out and flogged on the bottom of his feet. It's called falaka. It's a form of punishment, bastinado, it's called in Latin. He was flogged on the bottom of his feet until he passed out. But the kids also were deprived of food. And, and so one of the things about the memoir that I think stands out is that we learn that these kids behind the scenes are trying to exercise their own agency by, you know, finding ways to pilfer food. Um, probably one of the more disturbing aspects of the memoir is that kids were going to the graveyard and finding bones, likely of other children, because they've discovered um, hundreds of bo bodies of children at the site. It's an, you know it's still a site there today in Lebanon, and it has a memorial for all the children who died. Um, but yes, they were you know uh, taking human bones and crushing them in to eat them for sustenance because they were being starved in the orphanage. Now, there was a famine during World War I, but, you know, there's point in, points in the memoir where he talks about they broke into the kitchen to steal some potatoes and things. Th there was food there, but food was being used as a weapon, you know, um, to uh, force, force the children into cultural genocide, really, cultural assimilation, which is another as aspect of genocide, just as it was for indigenous people in Americas, in America and Canada, for that fact. Um, we know also there was high rates of mortality in those institutions as well. So um, that's the story of Aintura. It was a bit of a laboratory or experiment to save Armenians, but through this sort of torturous route. Um, and there are still debates about Jamal Pasha um, because 
he wasn't an advocate of killing Armenians outright. It seems, and this is my reading, that he saw Armenian bodies, at least those of children, as being pliable, fungible. They could be sort of transplanted into a different environment and still be useful to the state. And so that's why, generally speaking, in the Ottoman Empire, women and children were, were easily transplanted into, into other households because they could provide a kind of surplus labor for the state. Um, they could become good citizens. Some of them did become, you know, ardent nationalists. Um, we have cases of that, too. Um, but many of them, like Panyan, you know, would remember the abuse and, and, and resist it. Why did you name the three parts of this book bodies, skin, and bones? Um, because they talk about bodies, skins, and bones in each of those sections. And um, I wanted to start with bodies because, you know, in genocide, bodies are pulled apart. It's an attack on the genos, on the kin or family. Com family, kin, community pulled apart the bodies um, and actually bodies in, as individuals were targeted with um, symbolic violence and sexual atrocities in ways that communicated power, state power. Um, and then I, 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 I organized um, skin in part because I wanted to talk specifically about tattoos, tattoo removal, you know, the nature of stigma and how tattoos, even still for um, many people, in, especially in the West, signify a kind of racial otherness or cultural otherness. Um, that's not so untrue for the Ottoman Empire as well, but there's a long tradition of racializing tattoos among um, criminologists. And so having done some skin studies um, and read up on those issues, I wanted to try to understand more how it is that skin provo provokes really memory, traumatic memories for Armenians. What is it about skin that produces this kind of very strong effect, affective response in humans, generally speaking, but uh, specifically when we see a Holocaust tattoo or these tattoos conjure up memories? And then Bones wasn't going to be written. I actually was not. Bones came last um, in my thinking. It was mostly through a conversation with a friend where I shared this these pilgrimages and this tradition of pilgrimages of Armenians to the desert to interact with human remains. Um, a friend of mine, Gemma Angel, who's a tattoo scholar in, in the UK, um, she said, you know, this is really good stuff. I think, I think people need to know this. Maybe it has a place in your book. And so I actually, the part three came, came last. I really thought it was going to be about bodies and skin, but the bones seemed to fit Except, you know, bones have this appearance of not having a gender. If you don't have a trained eye, you can't tell a male bone from a female bone. Sometimes the bones are so small, due to emaciation, you can't tell a grown woman's bone from a child's bone. Um, so the bo there's something about the ambigu ambiguity of the gender of the bones, I think, that helps people sort of imagine sometimes themselves, their own grandparents, their family members their own, yeah, their own gender in the, in, in, the, in the killing fields as they're looking upon them. So it seemed like Bones had to be part of the book and it, it did come last. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I thought the body, the, maybe, maybe the book can become a body 
body, skin, and bone. Um, and I, at first, I really did want the book to be more like a scrapbook, as how I was visioning it when I was writing it. But um, I had to make it cohere some somehow, so I made it cohere around actually the materiality of the body. What does your research reveal about children's experiences during the Armenian genocide? Um, well, like I was saying about Karnikpanyan, is the intense trauma uh, that children experienced in uh, Turkish orphanages. Um, you know, but there's also a different kind of trauma. We have pretty in incredible records from the League of Nations ran what they called a neutral house. Um, this was a rescue home, if you will, in, in Constantinople, Istanbul, after the war. And after the war, basically by treaty, the forcible conversion of, of Armenians was vacated by treaty. So technically, those families were supposed to return those Armenian kids, but many of them didn't. You know, and I think this has to do with the idea that once once you're converted to Islam, it's not like you're going to revert back to Christianity. It's really viewed as unidirectional. And, and you also had at the time, Turkish nationalism that viewed Turks as being superior to Armenians. Um, maybe families formed really strong attachment to those children, didn't want to hand them over. Um, so in some cases, you have the, the league sort of forcibly taking these children from these Muslim houses. And those, those, those were hard to read as well because the children were deeply traumatized in many cases by being removed from the only family they ever knew. Many of them were too young to remember their Armenian past or only remembered it in fragmentary ways. Um, and so some of them did not, you know, were responding very violently to being removed from those Muslim households. And that was hard to read because you realize that either way, it was going to be traumatic. The traumatic experience of being forcibly removed from your Armenian family, the traumatic experience of being forcibly removed from your adoptive Muslim family. Um, so it's just remarkable what the, the kids, the children endured. Um, some of them were adamant that they wanted to be returned. And then sometimes after a few weeks in the house, they remembered songs or remembered words in Armenian. They had all these techniques to try to determine who's, you know, the Armenian buried inside the Muslim child and sort of teasing it out. But of course, there were many critics of this process. Um, many Turkish nationalists viewed this as taking Turkish children and forming them into Armenians. Um, and that's what Halid, as Halidi Adib Adavar argues, argues this. Um, and other Turkish nationalists viewed that these children were just Muslim kids who were being indoctrinated into being Armenians. So there's all this kind of mirroring here in the sense that Turks actually viewed themselves well, the official Turkish rhetoric is that, you know, Turkey does view itself as the victim in the story. And Turkish nationalists viewed themselves as victims when these children were being removed. Um, and it's, you know, it's either way, for the children themselves, their experience was deeply traumatizing. There's a quote that I'd be curious to ask you about on page 201. You, you write as follows. A warning to genocide denialists. 
Examining these narratives is not an apology for their use as an instrument in cultural genocide and their power to deface Armenian identity. I do not seek to legitimize the tattoos, but only to uplift an area of knowledge that could assist us in understanding more fully why the tattoos were applied to Islamized Armenians. I offer this intervention in order to avoid the pitfalls of the approximate or partial truths that circulate in the absence of context. The dominant framing of tattoos as shameful marks of sexual enslavement in visual and textual rhetoric has already been established in my own analysis in previous chapters, but it still falls short of explaining the purpose the tattoos served within their tribal context. Scholars have yet to explain, for example, why the motifs that Armenian women and men survivors bore on their skin are identical to those of tattooed Arab, Kurdish, and Roma women, a fact that, by itself, suggests we need to probe deeper. Can you elaborate on this for us? Yeah, I felt I felt uh, it necessary because I'm trying to dive into the context of the tattoos. That means I have to actually, you know, read tattoo anthropology written and produced by Turks and Kurds to try to understand what those tattoos meant mean in that universe. That that had never really been explained by um, scholars, and I know we've had we have some great texts out there, but. You know, we know that these tattoos meant things. They they were beautifying marks. But beyond that, or that, for some Armenians, their slave markings is how they've been described. There are signs of abuse or slave markings. But it didn't seem like we really knew the context to them. So I wanted to say that by, you know, exploring context as a scholar, that doesn't mean that I'm apologizing or saying, oh, she says the tattoos are actually good and are mean mean something positive for these women. That's not at all what I'm saying. They clearly felt shame. I don't want to efface how they felt about their tattoos, but only to understand why they might have been applied in the first place. And we we don't we don't have a lot of answers as to why. I do have some texts that I consulted that talk about how these tattoos were totems of protection, protective totems meant to protect the bearer from harm. I found that ironic. Um, they're, they're also affiliation with tribal, you know, tribal communities is one of the other things that some of these tattoo markings mean. Um, and some of them are, you know, again, for beautification, for fertility. So I point those out along the way because I want to try to glean more, more, more context to these women the stories and maybe try to understand what these tattoos might have meant to those who applied them while also recognizing that being marked as from you know, as belonging to another community was in, in part of a cultural genocide in which Armenian identity was being wiped out of their traditional indigenous lands and that these marks also were traumatic to those women. That is to say, we're scholars we're historians. We need. To, we always want to look at the context. That's our training: is to study context, and to put those contexts in conversation with each other, so that we could get the fuller picture. Um, for genocide denialists, you know, um, I think it's important to know that some Turkish scholars, you know, these are Turks did these women a favor, right? Turks and 
Kurds and others did these women a favor by adopting them when no one else would have. Many of them had already been sexually abused along the deportation route, which was common. So they view them themselves as humanitarian because they took on Armenian women as wives, but don't question like the process at all. And so those denialists, I just wanted to directly address them, you know, so that my words would not be, if at least I would have a disclaimer, if someone did try to use my words to say, oh, look, these women, these tattoos, you know, were beautifying marks. They didn't, they didn't deface these women. Oh, I also talk about them actually literally defacing Armenian identity at the same time, because they are, and, and Armenians do not practice these tattooing traditions. So, um, so yeah, I felt like I had to, to take that disclaimer and, and place it here um, in order to preempt what's surely going to happen, which is genocide denialists will um, want to, well, what's called like kind of the turn to innocence and say they're innocent and that they actually were the rescuers of these women, which is what you find in some texts. Why did you choose the specific title of this book? Can you explain the significance of calling your book Remnants and its relationship to the subject matter that you develop? Well, well, Remnants is, and for Holocaust and Armenian genocide studies, a very powerful term. Um, remnants is often used in the pejorative sense in Turkey, where Armenians who survived the Armenian genocide are called Remnants of the Sword. I wanted to turn that on its head and use it more in the kind of Armenian, um, you know, genocide survivors um, have used the term remnants to sort of talk about survivors. Uh, but I also thought that it was important to talk about remnants in terms of the traces that remain in the archive, the very minute traces of these women's voices, these women's voices in the archives. So I wanted to use remnants in all those kind of multivalent ways. And of course, you know, remnants in Holocaust studies, thinking of Primo Levi is very important. Um, remnants at Auschwitz. So it, it's, I mean, it's a powerful metaphor, but it's one that's really rich and capacious. I think it can encompass many things, including those fragmentary texts that I share that are interwoven between some of the chapters. Um, the texts are, these texts are translated, some of them by me, some of them by, I mean, I had my friend uh, Tamar, uh, translate the poem because she's a poet and she can she can translate a poem far better than I ever could. But we translated these um, remnants in order to have really primary sources there. I was hoping that the book could find its way into classrooms and that students or even learners who are not, not in a classroom could engage those remnants to try to listen for these women's voices, to know that they're there and that Sometimes they're there in very fragmentary and incomplete ways, but that that doesn't matter. Um, their voices are still in the historical record, so we can't dismiss them. Um, we have to listen to them. On page 13, you, you write as follows. In order to humanize the survivor community and make the storytelling more personal, I frequently refer to my interlocutors and many survivors by their first names. Using the first names of survivors and their descendants echoes the names of survivors, many of whom had lost all memory of their surnames, their lineages severed, 
In this historical narrative, I blend traditional archival sources and oral interviews with my own auto-ethnographic voice, the latter a disciplinary heresy for some historians. By periodically including my own auto-ethnographic entries, I remind the reader that I too have a subjectivity that inflects the collective memoir I narrate. The story of these displaced Armenians is also my story as I write from a position of exile. Acknowledging my positionality reminds the reader that historians shape the stories they tell and how the sources we use are mediated. Can you elaborate on this for us? Yes. Um, well, the first person that using the first name is for people that I, especially the people I have interviewed, they're, you know, with oral interviews that I supplement in the book. I don't know. I, I really wanted the book to feel personal in the sense that, you know, a, a lot of history writing, including my own history writing before this book, was impersonal in the third person, you know, it, using all the established um, uh, kind of the established uh, conventions of the field of history. You're not supposed to use first names. You're supposed to use last names, right? But I, I felt like there was something symbolic about first names in the sense that I could um, personalize it so that you felt like you really got to know Suzanne, you really got to know Agavni. And then the second part um, was that, you know, many people lost their last names. Um, they, they maybe only remembered their first name. They lost their surnames. They lost their fathers. Um, they lost their memory of what their name was. Um, those are also found in the historical records where the child no longer remembers their name, which is, is kind of like the ultimate tragedy, right? Thinking about the ultimate completion of cultural genocide is that the child no longer remembers their name. So I, 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 I was thinking about that, and I was thinking also about making the book personal by including my own I. Um, you know, I had often written in the third person, you know, referring to myself as the author, you know, not as a person, but the autoethnography, acknowledging the gaps in my own memory, the gaps in my own family's history, um, acknowledging that I have a subjectivity. Uh, there is a, a, certainly many historians still believe in something like objectivity, but, you know, most of the disciplines have had a reckoning with that, you know, to really talk about how our subjective, our subjective, um, Placement matters in what we're doing, in what we're writing, in what we're researching. And so I took cues from anthropology and ethnography because they're honest about their relationship. They spend a lot of time acknowledging their relationship to their subject so that the reader knows that they are not some kind of neutral observer, but a person with your own history, with your own biases addressing this subject. And so that included, you know, rather than not telling you that I'm the granddaughter of survivors, you know, I tell you I'm the granddaughter of survivors. And I hope that that um, means that my personal memoir, if this is one at all, is now embedded in this collective memoir that is this book. Because I, I really need to put my story up against others um, to uh, make sense of what happened to me and hopefully... You know, those little embellishments of autoethnography, as it's called in the field, um, enhances, you know, what I've done here 
Um, autoethnography is also something deeply embraced by feminists. So I should say that too, because a lot of feminists are also engaged in this as a way of um, entering a dialogue, you know, with your subject in a more honest way, um, as sort of as a as a as a transparency. Um, so anyway, I, I I I've chosen to do this. I don't expect it to go over well with everyone because it is a disciplinary heresy because historians don't usually do this. But I'm I'm starting to observe more historians are including a little bit more about themselves in their prologues. And um, maybe maybe we've moved beyond that older generation of historian who's actually quite averse to it. What does your research reveal regarding hunger, disease, and malnutrition during the Armenian genocide? I mean, I, I think I'd already said, you know, just that we learned that hunger, hunger is a weapon of war, right? Um, I can't help but think right now that the Armenians of Artsakh, an enclave known as the Karabakh are being starved out. 100, uh, 120,000 Armenians are being starved out um, by Azerbaijan right now. And, um, you know, the shelves are em empty. There's a blockade. And it means medicines and food um, and even electric and water supplies are precarious, you know, being shut, shut down. Um, our bodies are precarious. And, you know, we, we can quickly succumb, you know, to the elements, to hunger, um, and so that's why I think we should understand um, using hu hunger as a weapon of war, you know, is an extreme human rights violation. And it's one that can easily lead, you know, to genocidal practice uh, for the Armenians being deported, you know, again, without supplies, without provisions. I mean, it's, it's astonishing how long people can go without food. You can go less long without um, without water, but it's remarkable how long people were able to go without food or how creative people got about finding something to eat. Um, and so, you know, it was certainly weaponized in the Armenian genocide, but we also had that extreme deprivation. There, you know, there, there were diseases, cholera, typhus. Um, people got diseases of the eye, diseases of the skin, uh, lice. So there are a number of different um, ailments. And then women who were trafficked were showing up with gonorrhea and syphilis at the rescue homes. Um, and so both of these things went together to, I think, um, weaken Armenians uh, during the deportation route. And certainly starvation was meant to kill. How can your research contribute to philosophical debates about the character and meaning of evil? It's a really, um, really tough question, but um, I guess I would say that because I didn't approach this from the standpoint of good and evil, um, uh, what I what I did approach the subject from the standpoint of is trying to understand how it is that. Um, perpetrators can of, of genocide um, use certain kinds of techniques of the body of their victims to prepare themselves psychologically for mass killing. And so I guess instead of that kind of good and evil, more kind of uh, sort of a religious framework, um, 
I, I approached it more from kind of a psychological preparatory framework. I was influenced by Jean Franco's book, Cruel Modernity, which talked specifically about how perpetrators have to or tend to um, make their victim into a plaything, making killing into a game. All of these things are ways to sort of make the killer more comfortable with doing uh, the work that they're going to do, the body work of genocide. Um, so I, I guess for me, um, you know, whether it's sexual atrocity, um, various forms of symbolic mutilation of men, women, children's bodies, these types of things, we know that they happened. Armenians know these stories. I'm not telling them anything new. But the framework through which I'm trying to understand them is that um, they were done in order to prepare psychologically killers for their work. And, and they were also done to make a very, um, a, a, an example of men who are in positions of power who should have been in the protective role uh, in order to say and communicate to the community, we can do anything we want to you and you can do nothing about it. And uh, plucking the beards out of an Armenian priest publicly or, um, you know, we also have other, you know, more extreme cases like castration and other, these things were done, or killing a man on the threshold of his door, of his home, is is communicating that. Um, and so we know that these types of communications through violence are happening between men. You know, it's really communicating, one male group is communicating to the other that you can no longer protect your kin, you can no longer protect your women and children, you are under my complete control. Um, we can call that evil. I mean, it is evil. Um, but but I, I was more interested in the techniques that were being deployed to execute that. Certainly eradicating an entire community from its indigenous homeland is something that's evil, um, for sure. Um, but for me as a, a scholar, you know, I, I, I go I go to this other place because I, you know, my way of dealing with trauma is I want to analyze it, um, you know, working through trauma in DiCapra's terms. So I'm working through it by trying to analyze it and trying to kind of um, pick it apart to, to ask questions why and how. And um, but yeah, I think I think there's other scholars who use that framework of good and evil who would certainly understand what happened as evil. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Well, um, my next project, uh, you know, this book spent a significant time in Aleppo, and Aleppo is a place that's near and dear to me, and um, I'm going to be returning to research on Aleppo and writing a history of Aleppo's Armenian community, which includes the survivor community that settled there and created new spaces in the city. Um, it feels really urgent to me to write a book about the Armenians of Aleppo in light of the disappearance of that community. Um, I don't want to say complete disappearance. All of my family members are still in Aleppo, ex you know, minus my immediate family, of course. But, um, you know, the war has really done a lot of damage to the city, but also to the country. And so anybody who can get out of Syria is really trying to get out and with regard to Aleppo, because the war was so severe in Aleppo, a lot of Armenians are already living outside of the city and living 
in the diaspora again. So it's yet another Armenian diaspora was created during the the war in Aleppo. Um, so um, the entire city quarters are empty um, and houses for sale. And there's a real question about the future of the community. So I want to document that and, and think about that question and also write about the really deep roots that Armenians had in the city of Aleppo even before the Armenian genocide. Thank you. Thank you for everything you've shared. I have been absolutely humbled to listen to you during the course of our dialogue and would like to convey my heartfelt gratitude for such, gener gener such generous and erudite and eloquent responses throughout the course of our precious time together. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for your interest in my book. And I think we have a lot to talk about. Um, and I know that we only scratched the surface today, but thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you. I think you're the salt of the earth. I really think you're a saint for bringing this wisdom to the benefit of all humanity and all your readers for the sake of wisdom itself and for the sake of survivors and victims of the Armenian genocide and for their living descendants. Thank you, guys, to kind, but I, I think all of us are are doing the work when we remember. And that's that's what we're doing right now. Thank you. So as we end today, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Elise Samergian regarding her newly published book, Remnants, Embodied Archives of the Armenian Genocide, published in Palo Alto, California by Stanford University Press 2023. Elise is the Robert Aram and Marianne Kalustian and Stephen and Marianne Mugar, Chair of Armenian Genocide Studies at the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you.